How's it going, guys? Good evening. Well, um, for those of you that I, I don't know, I think I know most of you guys, but my name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage, and if you're new, don't worry. The teaching's better than this, so don't be scared away. <laughs> um, Jeff has been gracious to let me teach once in a while, and I really love it and really enjoy it. Oh, it's good to be in the house of the Lord on a Wednesday night, amen? Halfway through the week, almost to the week, no, halfway to the weekend, you know, it's good to get that little pick-me-up. Um, if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and flip them open to Mark. As you guys know, we're uh, probably a few weeks into our study on the book of Mark. We're talking about discipleship and what it is to be a disciple, what it is to make disciples, more specifically even, so... We're going to keep trucking right through that. Once you find your place, I'm going to ask you guys to uh, take about 10 seconds and pray for me that I can uh, communicate to you the gospel and that God would fill me with the Holy Spirit and also to pray that, um, that God would speak to you because I think he really hears those prayers when, when you just ask him to teach you. So just silently to yourself, will you take 10 seconds, pray for me, <laughs> and then pray that God will speak to you through me, and then I'll close and then we'll get started. Lord, I, I pray that you would fill this place with life-changing truth. Jesus, you are the high priest. Lord, would you minister to us eternal truth through the Holy Spirit into the deep places of our hearts, God. Lord, these people, this family called Heritage, God, we, we love you. Father, we, uh, we're thankful for the grace that's been given to us, Lord, that we might be able to understand these things, Lord, that can only be revealed by spirit, not by flesh and blood. God, I'm thankful for this text that we get to dig into tonight, Lord. It's, uh, it's intriguing to me, God, and it's life-changing. I pray that we could even just grasp, Lord, just a little bit of what you meant when you said some of these things, Jesus, when you were here. And uh, Lord, I pray we would have a hunger tonight, a hunger to know you better, a hunger to be disciples, a hunger to make disciples, Jesus. In your precious name, amen. Would you guys stand with me as we read the scriptures? It's kind of an old school thing that we never do, but I just want to make sure you're all awake. <laughs> Some churches, they always do that. You stand for the reading of scriptures out of a respect thing, so we're just going to do that tonight. So Mark chapter 2, we're going to read verses 18 through 28. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away, and from it, the new from the old." And a worse tear is made, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Verse 23, and one Sabbath, he was going through the cornfields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck ears of corn. 
the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You guys can have a seat. So as you can tell, that's kind of two chunks of scripture right there. So we're going to take the first chunk, and then we're going to take the second chunk. And I think, hopefully, they will tie together at the end to make one, uh, one, one thought here. I love teaching God's word. I love it. You guys see me lead worship on Sundays. I love that too. But I love, love teaching God's word. It's, it's something that um, just thrills me to death, <laughs> to, you know, to, to be able to spend um, a ton of time and just get in and really dig into these verses and say, Lord, what would you have for your church? What would you have for your people? It just totally excites my heart. Um, the thing that really frustrates me about it is that my, my inability to communicate it as deep as God shows it to me. <laughs> when you spend a huge amount of time on something, um, on one, one or two verses or one or two thoughts, God just can, can show you so much in the depths of your heart, so much more than you can really communicate. And then I have to try to communicate that to you in 40 minutes and I just can never quite get it across as exciting as it is, but I'm gonna do my best. Um, this section of scripture is fascinating to me. I've always, I've always read this scripture about the wineskins and this new cloth, and I'm like, man, that's just so mystical. Jesus, you're just like, that's so cool. What does that mean, you know? <laughs> and then I just keep reading. I wouldn't find out. Um, but it's just an intriguing section of scripture. Jesus just throws this really kind of philosophically cool um, picture back at these people. And so we're going we're gonna to look at that, that tonight. So um, Splitting it up here a little bit, let's just start with verse 18 and 20. Um, Verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. We're going to talk a little bit about Pharisees. I'm going to get a little bit of groundwork there. Uh, We're going to talk about fasting. Continuing on, and people come and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Then he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. So here we have this scene of these people noticing that Jesus and his disciples are not fasting when religious leaders, the Pharisees, and their followers, their so-called disciples even, are fasting. And John the Baptist, who's still um, active in ministry at this time, he's on the scene, and his, and his disciples are fasting. And here's Jesus and his disciples, and they're not. So it's raising curiosity. So the people come to Jesus and they say, what's the deal? Okay? Now, I want to do just a little bit of like hard work here first. It might be a little boring, but I think it's going to set the stage better for the point in the end. Okay? I want to talk about Pharisees a little bit. Some of you guys probably already have some understanding about the Pharisees, but there's a few things I want to point out, um, specifically as to why the Pharisees would have been uh, s- such a big part of this question. Okay, the Pharisees were the standard for uh, any, kind of, any kind of religious ideal. So, so in their time, if they were going to compare anyone to what they thought religion was or what they thought a religious person was or a religious association, they would be looking at the scribes, they would be looking at the Pharisees. Okay, they were the top dogs religiously of that time. So that's who they would be comparing Jesus to. 
Okay, so that, that's, they're, they're very prominent in this culture. When they think religious, when they think even spiritual, they think Pharisees, okay? So they're sort of the bar, right, as far as they're concerned. They're the bar that's set, and they're gonna be consistently comparing Jesus to that bar. These Pharisees, they had written, Pharisees and the scribes had written over the years commentaries on commentaries on commentaries. You guys know what a commentary is. That's sort of like an exposition or an explanation of the scripture. So these Pharisees had written tons and tons and volumes and volumes of breaking down the law into these specific things um, to where every jot and tittle was literally, could be, could be like, <laughs> I mean, every aspect of the law. They would take a law and then they would write, you know, 50 precursors to that law. So, for instance, like we're going to talk about today with the Sabbath. Okay, you can't work on the Sabbath. Well, what does that mean? The Pharisees would break that down. Well, you can walk this many feet. You can carry this many sticks. You know, I mean, I mean specific stuff. They had broken that down and, and they, they'd literally put that on people as the law, even though it was really commentary on the commentary on the commentary on the law. It wasn't necessarily the original law or what the law was intended to be. This was the Pharisees. This is what they did. This is what the scribes, this is what they did. Um, one commentator says it well, and this is a little wordy. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but, but it's good. It says, by Jesus' day, the original fervor and vitality of, the Pharisee, of Phariseeism had hardened into a religious Formalism. Okay, so something that happened over time. Pharisees and scribes weren't always necessarily this far off base, but over time, in Jesus' day, they found themselves extremely hardened. It says their conformity to legal prescription, I'm sorry, their conformity to legal prescriptions replaced the importance of the heart. Catch that? Their conformity to legal prescriptions, as in this law, this Torah, is a prescription for anything in life. So any question you have in life is found in a law. It's found in a command, okay? That was what they believed. It replaced the importance of the heart. Therefore, changing the true intent of the law, which we'll talk about what that is, believing that Torah was perspective or prescriptive for all of life. The Pharisees wove an intricate web of regulations around it. Their purpose may have been to honor Torah, the first five books of the Bible, but their effect was a confining, even crushing burden on human existence. So they held the Torah in such high esteem that they would put it even over the condition of the heart. They would put it even as, as a confining and crushing burden on human existence rather than the law being what it was intended to be. Now, again, these were the people that they would compare Jesus to, these Pharisees, these scribes. These were, the, these were sort of the bar that was set as far as they were understood of what it meant to be a religious person. And we kind of do the same thing a little bit, don't we? Right? I mean, I, I had this conversation with, I can't remember if it was Jeremy or Jeff, but, you know, if Jesus stepped back on the scene today, how many of you guys went and saw Son of God? You guys see that? I mean, he just, they didn't know what to do with him, right? I mean, he was just like, everything he did, they just didn't get it, right? If Jesus stepped onto the scene today, what, the first thing that we would do, we, we, he would, we would compare him to our religious heroes, Right? well, you're not much like Billy Graham, right? Or you're not a lot like whoever, whoever your favorite, your, your favorite thing is. I'm not saying Billy Graham's a Pharisee. Don't, don't get that. But just as an example, you, you would find the most religious person. You're not a lot like Mother Teresa. I mean, you know, like, so I don't know. You'd find the most religious person, the person you looked up to the most, and you would try to cram Jesus into that, and that's exactly what they did. And and the most religious person that they knew of at the time was the Pharisees. And they said, Jesus is nothing like these people, so therefore, Jesus must not be from God, right? 
Okay, I want to talk a little bit too about fasting and the story here that the people are coming to Jesus and they're questioning him about fasting. Um, now, the point, of, the point of fasting as far as I know, and this is, a, this is just my opinion in a few scriptures, but um, the point of fasting is to petition God coupled with prayer. Okay, we see that modeled for us in the New Testament that we pray and we fast. Jesus said that you need to pray and you need to fast. Okay, uh, fasting is uh, to place you in a vulnerable and a humble place of dependence on God's strength. It's kind of about taking a, a position of humility, fasting is, to say, God, I'm, I'm going to step back and I'm going to put myself in a weak position by not eating food and I'm going to allow um, you to be my strength in that and I'm going to petition you and pray through that. It's a very humble, kind of a humble position that you put yourself in. And we know Jesus was for fasting. So when these people come in our text, when these people come to him and question him about fasting, we know Jesus just doesn't say, well, fasting is ridiculous, I don't do that. He doesn't say that. Jesus fasts, in fact, as you guys know. He gets baptized, the Holy Spirit comes down on him and the, on the dove, and then he, 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 he does what? He goes into the wilderness and fasts for 40 days and for 40 nights. So he, he, he did it. He modeled it for us, right? Um, Jesus speaks of fasting in the Gospels, but he says specifically that you're supposed to do it in a way that is not um, showy. You're supposed to do it in a way where, where no one really knows that you're fasting because, you know, spiritual pride can take over and those kinds of things. Um, now the Jews and the Jewish culture in this time, just a little context here, as a result, uh, you, you know, they, they would sometimes fast as a result of personal loss. So, you know, you, you lost a child or you, or you lost a spouse or, or you lost your, your donkey or whatever. You know, you, you would fast as a sort of an expression of that personal loss. Secondly, they would do it as an expression of repentance, sometimes, Jewish culture. Um, thirdly, uh, as a preparation for prayer. They would do that, and those aren't necessarily good or bad things there, but this is what the culture would do fasting at, as a, at that time for. So my point being, fasting was, was highly regarded, okay? So when they're coming to Jesus with this thing, this isn't just some random thing. This is a big part of their religion. This is a big part of what they do to, to express their religion. This is a big part of what they do to express and, and show their love for God. And the Pharisees, of course, took it to another level because, you know, they were the Pharisees. They were the, uh, the legit religious people at that time, quote-unquote, um, this would be equivalent to a modern day like hot button subject, right? Like where, where um, maybe some certain sects of Christianity would say certain things like, like maybe what we would call open handed issue, like whether you can have a glass of wine or whether you should read King James only or things like that. They would, they would consider that to be an absolutely no kind of a thing. And maybe we, maybe we or other churches would say, well, the scripture doesn't exactly say that, so we can't really be def- defiant on that. Well, that, that's kind of like that kind of subject, Jesus, Jesus is like, where in the scriptures did it ever say that you were mandatory to fast twice a week? And that's what the Pharisees would do. But yet, the Pharisees took it to that next level where the people assumed that because they did it twice a week, that that was what you were supposed to do. So they see Jesus, and he's not fasting twice a week. He's not fasting at the same time that John the Baptist and the, and the Pharisees' disciples are. So they naturally assume that he's off base. Um, the only biblically prescribed fast was on the Day of Atonement, just so you guys know. That was the only time that the Bible said you must fast at this point. That was, that was when that was set aside, as far as I understand. Um, the Pharisees had turned fasting into something that displayed religious piety. So rather than something that you do out of, out of like an abundance of your heart to worship God, to show him your affection, to show him your repentance even, it, it, they had turned it into something that showed their, their, um, their level of achievement in their religion. Um, rather than a personal exercise to further dependence on God. So they turned it into something that it wasn't. Uh, Luke 18, just to further this point, Luke 18, uh, 12, 
says, you can just listen if you want. You guys have heard this before. Jesus tells the parable of the two men going into the temple to pray. Um, He says, the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. You see how he kind of injects that there as like, this is the point of pride for this Pharisee. This Pharisee holds this as, I fast twice a week. So therefore, I'm the bomb, right? I'm the legit religious guy, you know? Um, anybody still, still say the bomb in here? I used to say that. Stefan, the bomb. Again, Jeff teaches, not me. <laughs> uh, um, anyways, Jesus uses that as an illustration to show religious piety and pride. He doesn't show it as, as, as a way to show that fasting twice a week makes you more spiritual than anyone else or closer to God than anyone else. Fasting is meant to be a Christian freedom, not an obligation. Got it? Thumbs up, everybody? Got it, okay. Um, just as a side note, the disciples of John were fasting too. Well, why were they fasting? We don't exactly know, but it may have been because of the imprisonment and death of their leader. John the Baptist at this time was imprisonment and, in prison and eventually beheaded, as we know. It could have been that they were fasting because they were bummed. Or it could have been that they were just fasting because they wanted to. It doesn't matter. Side note. Um, let's look at one more thing, and then we're going to get into a little more of the heart of this. I want to look at the wedding feast. Talk about that a little bit. Wedding's a little different there than here, Okay. Um, weddings here, you know, usually it's a one-day thing. Um, unless you're the people planning it, then it's a more than a one-day thing. Um, it's a long-day thing. And, uh, but weddings there would typically be about a seven-day event, okay? So we're talking like a long celebration, a big, long celebration. Um, <clears throat> now, I, I don't, this probably goes without saying, but you don't fast during your wedding. You don't. You eat <laughs> a lot because it's a wedding, it's a, it's a celebration. I mean, it's awesome. Can you imagine showing up at your wedding uh, reception and saying, you know, babe, I'm just going to fast. You know, I just feel like this is an appropriate time to fast. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. I'm going to have a piece of cake. And then at my wedding, we had lasagna. I had a few pieces, probably too many, too many pieces. It's a celebratory thing. It's, it's ridiculous. So Jesus is bringing up this illustration to counter um, what these people are accusing him of by not fasting. He's bringing up this to counter it by saying an absurd illustration that it's like saying that you're at a wedding feast and you're not going to eat. It's silly. Now what's he talking about there? He says the bridegroom. When the bridegroom is with you, you don't fast. You don't. You eat. You celebrate. Now in Israel, wedding feasts will last seven days, as I said, um, number two, this wedding doesn't end like a typical wedding, though, okay? This is, this is the interesting thing. So a typical wedding after seven days, after the celebration, the bride and the bridegroom, they go off and they start their life together. Everything happily ever after, right? Any married people? Um, happily ever after. Just kidding. I love you. Um, <laughs> so, but this, this doesn't end that way, okay? He says, this is, I'm the bridegroom, this is the celebratory, why would we fast right now? We're celebrating but then, this isn't exactly how it ends. Now, I just read, I read a, I can't say I read it because I, I read maybe half of it, and then I've kind of set it down. But have you guys ever read The Count of Monte Cristo before? Seen the movie? Anyone seen the movie? Come on. Seen the movie? Okay, phenomenal story. I mean, the story's just, it's just epic. If you're a guy, you're just like, that's sweet. So what happens is the guy, Edmund Dantes, he's like this 18-year-old, happy-go-lucky, really good guy. He's a fisherman on a boat. He's poor. He has this friend who's rich and has everything. He comes back um, on the ship. He has this girl that he loves, and she loves him, and they're, you know, true love and that whole thing. And, and so he just gets promoted to captain of the ship. Everything's going really good for him. He goes and he gets his bride. They go and they go to the wedding celebration, have their wedding celebration, and right in the middle of it, 
And then there's this background story going on where his friends actually are jealous of him. So they make up the story about he, how he's actually you know, a spy for Napoleon Bonaparte. It's pretty, pretty epic. So they show up at the wedding feast, right? And they, sh- they rip him out of his wedding feast. They throw him in this cart, take him away, and they never see him again. And he has no idea what's going on. They don't tell him why. He's totally innocent. They throw him in this place called the Shadow Deef, which sounds epic. Throw him in the Shadow Deef. And he's in this, 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 this cell for like 15 or 20 years. And he never knows why, right? It's pretty rad. Slash just sad for him. But he, he eventually... <laughs> It doesn't end there. Okay, so he eventually gets out and, and he comes back and he, he like becomes this new person and he gets all this treasure and he like goes and seeks vengeance on all of these people and whatever. And then, and then he like, uh, and then he goes and he eventually gets his, his wife back and it's a happy ending. It's all, all that good stuff. But I'm reading that and I'm like, man, did they read the Bible when they got this? I mean, this is crazy. You know, here's Jesus, the bridegroom, come to start his church, come to claim his bride. And what happens in the middle? He's crucified. He's sent to the cross. He's innocent. <laughs> he's sent to the most brutal death that, that, that we can think of, not even that, but he's sent to, to take the wrath of God on himself, something that frightened him so bad that he sweat drops of blood. Innocently, for you and I, he's ripped from his wedding feast. He's ripped from his church. He's ripped from his friends, innocently. But that's not the end of the story, is it? No, because Jesus is coming back, right? That wedding feast is gonna continue. Check this out, this is cool. Revelation 19, 6 through 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. In case you didn't know, Revelation, this is at the end, okay? Let us rejoice and exult, and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, linen, bright and pure. So Jesus is the bridegroom. He was betrayed. He was taken to the cross innocently, just like the story. But he's coming back for vengeance, for justice. He's coming back, not this time as a humble servant, but as the king with armies and legions of angels. And he's going to bind Satan forever, right? And then we, his bride, the church, will be reunited with our bridegroom in the celebration for eternity, Right? That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. This is what Jesus is saying. He's just, he just, I mean, I guarantee they had no idea what he's talking about here. He says, why would we fast? This is like, this is the wedding feast, at least part of it. Why would we fast? He said, there's gonna be a time to fast because in a few days, or I, I don't, I can't say a few days, in a matter of time, I don't know exactly when this was, in a matter of time, I'm gonna to go to the cross and you guys are not gonna understand. You're gonna go from entering Jerusalem and having them put palm branches down and screaming Hosanna to a few days later, me being gone and you not knowing why. <laughs> me being dead, crucified, and you guys not knowing what to do, not understanding what's going on. So the, the, the celebration's gonna continue. But he's saying in our text, he's saying, there's gonna be a time to fast. There's gonna be a time. And I guarantee you, once that time came, they knew what he was talking about. Okay, now, verses 21 and 22, this is where it gets really interesting here. It says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worst tear is made, 
and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the, win- the, the wine is destroyed. So are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let me try to kind of communicate what this means a little bit because I'm not going to lie, I read that a million times before and I was just like, what? I don't know anything about wineskins and I don't sell my own clothes, so that doesn't make any sense. Um, but there, there's, there's reason to this, okay? So Jesus gives these two illustrations. First one is this wineskin, okay? So you, you got to put wine in something when it's, when it's first made, okay? So you put new wine. If you, if you take old wineskins that are used and dried and have been stretched already and you put new wine in there, what's going to happen is that new wine, because it's fermented, it actually expands in the, in, in, in the wine skin. So if it expands and the wine skin is old, it's going to expand and it's going to break, and then your new wine is all over the ground, Okay? And then you whine, right? Like, Come on, that was a good one. Come on. <laughs> then you whine because you went to the ground. I'll take comedy classes. I'll ask Jeff if I can do that. The second one is no one signs a, or no one sews a new piece of, of, of material on, on an old garment. And the reason why is because the old garment has already shrunk. The new garment is not. So when you wash the garment that now has the new patch on it, the new garment's going to shrink, and the old one's not, and it's going to rip off. It's a waste. It just doesn't work. So Jesus is saying this for a reason. Now, it's debatable as to like, whether he's talking about the fasting issue or whether he's talking about something totally different. I don't think it matters. I think the point is pretty obvious. It seems pretty obvious to me. Um, what, he's, what he's really trying to say here. Um, four things, if you're taking notes. Four things about these two parables. Number one, Jesus does not fit your box. Or wineskin, however you want to say it. Jesus doesn't fit in there. He cannot be integrated into or contained by pre-existing structures. Say that again. He cannot, will not, be integrated into or contained by pre-existing structures. Not Judaism, not the Torah, not the synagogue, not Heritage Christian Fellowship. He's bigger than we know. He's bigger than we can make him. And as much as we love to think that we have it all figured out doctrinally, theologically, philosophically, as much as we love to think we have them figured out in our bylaws, as much as we love to think that in a three-page paper we can fully explain the gospel and the Trinity and all of who God is, we cannot contain who he is. He's eternal. He's big. He's too big for us to, to understand. And not only that, but, but Jesus, every time he would encounter someone in the New Testament, I think I said, I said this last time we teach, but it's so true. Every time Jesus would encounter someone in the New Testament, he would offend them. It's like they, they think they would know what he was going to say or what he should say, and then he would do the complete opposite. He was just so outside of what they could get their head around. Tim Keller says, you know, you know you have encountered the true Jesus because you will always be offended by his sayings. <laughs> if you're not offended, if, and what I mean by offended is not like, oh, that was crude. I mean, if you're not offended, like, oh, man, I don't know what to do with that. Like, that pricks my heart. Or, oh, man, I, that really convicts me. That really causes me to just be stirred up then you probably haven't really encountered the true Jesus. If the sayings of Jesus don't make you kind of take a step back and say that's so completely contrary to what the world says, that's so completely outside of the, the worldview of what our culture says, then you probably haven't encountered the true Jesus because everything that he said is completely the opposite of what our culture is saying. If there is a gospel out there that fits perfectly into the coexist and the Unitarian thinking of our culture right now, then it's not the gospel. It just doesn't fit. It's outside, of what, it's outside of what we can understand. Number two on this parable. 
Jesus uses new vessels. I want you to note that. Okay, Jesus uses new vessels. You say that, I know that's obvious. But here's why. <laughs> it's a picture of something. Remember Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you have to be a new vessel. God doesn't want to use you the way you are. God wants to start over. God wants to make you reborn. And then, of course, Nicodemus says, how do you climb back into your mother's womb? (laughs) Missing the point completely. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This is salvation. God doesn't come to you and say, John Adams, there's a few things good about you, so I'm gonna take those few good things and I'm gonna add them with a few more good things and then we're gonna get a Christian. No, he says, I can't use anything. (laughs) It's all bad. Okay, this is a huge part of our theology you have to understand. Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. So that means that every part of us, every part of our heart is wicked above all things. The heart is deceitful, it is wicked. God wants to start from scratch. And that's what he does when we get saved. He gives you a new heart. He gives you new desires. He gives you a new spirit. He gives you a new hope. He gives you a new name. He gives you new everything. It's, it's awesome. He, he, he wants to make you a new vessel. Not salvaging the old because the old can't handle the new wine. <laughs> he needs to make you a new wineskin. You know, before I got saved, when I was about 16 or 17, I got saved and before that, there was a few times because, I'll be honest, like, I'm weird. Like, I knew God was real when I was a kid. Like, I knew he was real. But I just, I just couldn't, I just couldn't get saved for some reason. I just didn't, I just didn't want to give up whatever it was I wanted. I just, I just didn't want to serve him yet. But I knew he was real, and I knew that hell was real, and I knew that I was a sinner, and I understood all that. And there was a few times I remember as a kid, I just, I was like, you know what, I'm going to be good. <laughs> and I just, I'm going to be a good kid now. You know, I'm just going to do it. And it wasn't like, oh God, I'm completely wretched and worthless. Please give me a new heart. Give me a new life. It was like, you know what? I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to be good. And the next day, I wasn't good. <laughs> I mean, just in simple terms. It, there, it was impossible for me to do because there was nothing in my heart that was really good at all until Jesus came into the picture. And when Jesus came into the picture, it wasn't like, you know what? I think I'll be good. It was like a, I was in tears and I ran to the only place I could find that was quiet and that was the bathroom and I cried out to God and worshiped him because I had nothing left. It was him or nothing. I just, God, I'm just sick of myself. I'm sick of the world. I'm sick of what I can produce. There's nothing in me that I like. There's nothing about me that I like, and I like you. So make me look like you. And that was the place that he found me in, and that was the place where he changed me. But he didn't use my wicked heart. He gave me a new one. He made me a new wineskin. Number three, as a disciple, you will be stretched. I went to the chiropractor yesterday because my back was messed up. And he stretched, stretch, stretch, stretch my back, and it hurt really bad. So I get that. As a disciple, you'll be stretched. Jesus wants to expand in your life and fill every part of you. He will stretch you, and that hurts, okay? The part of the picture here is that this new wine is put into this wineskin, and it doesn't just stay, it ferments, and it grows, and it stretches, and these wineskins that are new have to be stretched and pulled, God's more worried about your sanctification. God's more worried about the condition of your heart, the condition of your faith, than he is about your comfort. And sometimes to get the condition of faith that he wants, you need to be stretched. You need to be stretched. Number four. Um, This is so cool. You need to be filled. You're a wineskin, you need to be filled. If you're not filled, you can't do anything. 
when we get saved, and some people believe that you get, you get filled later. I don't, I don't believe that. I believe that you, when, you get, when you get saved, you're reborn and you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's part of salvation. That now it's no longer me that lives, but Christ that lives in me. Everything that, that I do, like Paul says, I have this new man and this old man, and they war. There's my flesh that wants to do what my flesh wants to do, and then God who lives within me, my new heart that wants to do what God wants to do, and it's this war constantly. But as a wineskin, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. He makes you a new wineskin, and then you're filled with the Holy Spirit. What a cool picture. Okay, let's look at the next chunk of verses here, and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up. This one won't be as long. Verses 23 through 28. So after that incident here, one Sabbath, verse 23, he was going through the cornfields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck ears of corn. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? And he, he and those who were with him how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and, are, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Um, real quick on the Sabbath, I just want a little bit of groundwork here and then, and then I want to get to the heart of that. Uh, the Sabbath specifically in Judaism, the Sabbath specifically in Israel, that time, um, you can say like this, most of the world's religions esteem sacred places. I mean, they have some place that they hold very high in their religion, that that place is holy, that place is set apart, that place is important. Okay, for example, Islam honors Mecca. Don't think I'm smart. I read this in a commentary. Okay, can I just say that? Um, I don't know all this stuff. Um, Islam honors Mecca, Hinduism, the Ganges River, um, Shintoism, the island of Japan, Judaism also esteems Jerusalem. So each of these religions, they have this holy place that they set as their, like, their Mecca. Their, this is the point here. Um, but, but even higher than Jerusalem, I would say the Jews hold the Sabbath. It's their baby. I mean, it's, their, it's, it's so crucial to the heart of what they believe. Um, and it's so important. And not only now, and you'll still see that, I guess, if you go to Israel, and I'm, I get to go to Israel in a couple months, I'm excited to see that. But um, especially then, this was a heated thing. The Sabbath was a big deal. It was a big deal. Um, we in the West, we have a hard time kind of understanding that because we, really, we don't really live by it. Even a lot of us in the church, um, we, we don't think much about the Sabbath or what it really means to give it holy, keep it holy. Um, they believe the Sabbath is rooted, there's a few things they believe. They believe the Sabbath is rooted in the order of creation and attests to the divine order of the universe. Again, big deal. According to Jewish tradition, God chose Israel from all the people of the earth and instituted the Sabbath as an eternal sign and blessing of Israel's unique status. Okay? Again, they think it's a big deal. The Talmud describes the Sabbath as a holy ordinance of God and ordains that whoever observes the Sabbath becomes a partner with God in the creation of the world and brings salvation to the world. So case in point, they take it very seriously. Um, real quick, the grievance is that the plucking ears of grain, uh, the disciples are reaping, which is Exodus chapter 31. If you want to write this stuff down, you can. Exodus chapter 31, 13 through 17, it talks about, um, it talks about reaping. 
and how that's something you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath. According to Deuteronomy 30, or 23, verse 25, snitching grain from a neighbor's field was permissible. Okay, so you could go to your neighbor's field and get, you know, just get a snack real quick. That was okay. Um, but on the Sabbath, according to rabbinic ruling, it was not okay. Hence the reproach of Jesus saying that he breaks the law, that he's a lawbreaker. Okay, so through that stuff, three things in this text that I want to point out. And please listen to these because I'm excited about these. Number one, the Sabbath is made for man. Okay, that's what Jesus said. He, he gives two responses. The first one in his response to this is that the Sabbath is made for man. So he, he kind of has two cases for why this is okay. Okay, first one, Sabbath is made for man. Um, the Sabbath was never meant to be a burden or a yoke of the law. It wasn't. It was meant to be something for man. It was a provision. God didn't need to rest, yet he chose to model it because he knew we would need, to. So, so we would need it. So God, God didn't need to make the heavens and the earth in seven days, did he? He could have done it in six. In fact, wait, he did do it in six, right? He didn't need to take a day off. Was God tired? No. God, God wasn't tired, right? Let's try that again. Was God tired on the seventh day? No, God wasn't tired. Why did he rest? He rested because he wanted to model something for us that he knew we needed in our weak flesh, that we need a day off, that we need a day to focus on the Lord, that we need a day to recharge our batteries because we run out, we get old, we get tired. So God, who didn't need to, took a Sabbath rest. As we'll talk about earlier, I think he did it as a picture of Jesus, that there's rest coming. We'll talk about that. It's for man. He did it for man. Luke 14, one through six, listen to this. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Okay, he's picking this fight right here. Is it lawful or not? But they remained silent. So here's this guy, he has dropsy. And... Jesus is kind of like picking this fight a little bit. He's like, so is it, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they say, they remain silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, and this is, this is good, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. The, the point of that there, the reason why I read that is that Jesus is more concerned about you. The law was given for you. You get that? The law was given for you. Now, the law, in one sense, yes, is, is the divine and holy nature of God, and it shows us our fallenness, but the law is also, some laws were also specifically given for health benefits, for our benefits, um, because God loved us. Listen to 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments were given to us because he loves us. They're not supposed to be burdensome. What the Pharisees did, as I talked about, is they made them burdensome. They added to them. They broke them down to the point where, where no one could, could, could possibly even come close to that. There's a temptation, okay? This is, this is listen, this is a, there's a temptation to make God's commands burdensome. Now, there's two kinds of people, if I can broad brush everyone into two groups, okay? There's the kinds, <laughs> that's always good when you do that, right? Um, there's liberals and different. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, if you can broad brush everyone into two, two groups, there's, there's those that have a propensity to lawlessness and just say, you know what, I really don't care what anyone thinks. I'm just going to do whatever I want. And then there's the people um, that sort of really do care. And even though they're just as wicked, they, w- they really want mom and dad to pat them on the head. 
So you got the prodigal son and then the other brother, so to speak, right? The prodigal son that ran off and did whatever he want. I don't care, forget you, dad. I'm gonna go gamble, give me my money now. And then you have the other son who says, I do care about what you think, dad. So I'm gonna stay back and do all the right things, even though I really don't love you. I just really love, I, really want, I want you to think that I'm good. I want you to think that I'm special. It's over self-righteousness, okay? There's a temptation for the people that maybe are the ones that care. Now, I'm the one that cares. Even when I was a bad kid, I really wanted my dad to think I was a good kid. So I was two different people. I really cared. I cared about what people think. I cared about looking like I, I had it all together. There's a propensity for those people, like me, to make God's commands burdensome when he never meant for them to be burdensome. So you take something that God gave you as a gift, like the Sabbath, and you make it something that God never intended for it to be, you make it burdensome. You make it tiresome. You make it a yoke that you have to pull, even though God made that for you to rest so you don't work yourself to death. You see what I'm saying? There's a propensity to do that. My, my wife is so wise. She pointed this out to me, that, that Satan tempted Jesus with the word, with the scriptures. Isn't that interesting? He, he tempted Satan with the scriptures. And just, just like that, he does that with us often. We have, this, we have this temptation when we come to the scriptures for something that God meant for us to be restful and meant for us to be helpful and meant for us to be truth and life-giving to make it a yoke, to make it law, to make it religious, to make it something that burdens us, to make it something that doesn't free us but bogs us down. That's the temptation there. The Sabbath was never meant to be something that was a, a bond. The Sabbath was meant to be something that was given as a gift, is given a, as, a, as a gift for people. Number two things in this text here. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, so again, we're t- he's giving these reasons why him and his disciples eat some corn in a cornfield on the Sabbath day. Jesus says, I'm the, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Read it in verse uh, 27. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We talked about that. Verse 28, his second response. So the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. Right there, the Son of Man. What's he talking about? I don't know. I don't know how to say it plainly. He's God. Who made the Sabbath? God. Who is Jesus? God. You guys are calling out God for not doing what He said for you to do, and He made you. It's just ridiculous. Of course, they don't. They don't get that. John twelve fourteen through twenty two. My Father works unceasingly, and so do I. Jesus says. In other words, okay. God made the world in. Seven days, but he could have done it in six. He did do it in six, right? He didn't need to do it in seven. Now, is God still taking a Sabbath? Yes or no? Is God still, no, he's not taking a Sabbath. <laughs> if God was still taking a Sabbath, we'd all be gone because all God has to do is let go. All he has to do is let go. I mean, he's holding all this stuff together. Scientifically, there's things out there that scientists just can't figure out how it works and what's holding it together. Yeah, that's God. He's holding it together. And if he took a day off, it's all gone. It all comes apart. God doesn't take a day off. Who is Jesus? He's God. He said, my Father in heaven doesn't take a day off. I don't take a day off because I'm God. So why are you guys questioning me on this? I think there's a principle here for us too. This might be a side note, but I think there's a principle. It's who are we to question God? Who are we to question God? I hear this so many times. You know, it just doesn't seem loving of God to send people to hell. Okay, let's think about that. Who told you what love is? God. Who put that in your heart that tells you whether something is loving or not loving? God. Who is love? God. 
So who are you to say that that's not loving? Who are you to say that's not loving? God knows what loving is because he is love. The only reason you know or have a fraction of an idea of what love is is because God placed that in your heart so that you even have a, a, a tiny idea of what that is. And the same thing here. What are you doing eating on the Sabbath, Jesus? I made the Sabbath. <laughs> I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I don't rest. My father doesn't rest, and I don't rest. That's awesome. Number three, and this is, this is the important one. This is what's really cool. If we could just get this tonight. Just, uh, write this down, would you, if you're taking notes? Jesus has become our Sabbath rest. He's become our Sabbath rest. I gotta tell you guys, like I said earlier, man, my back on Sunday, like I have like a bulge disc or something in my back to where like I could barely walk on Monday and Tuesday. I sit Monday and Tuesday at the chiropractor, a total of six hours and they zapped me and poked me and popped me and jumped on me and it's traumatizing. (laughs) But man, I just, I couldn't rest, you know? How much of our life do we spend wanting to rest? Like, oh, I can't wait till the vacation in the summer because I'm gonna rest. Oh, I can't wait for the next three hours to get off work so I can go home and rest. And then you get home and it's really not restful. You get on your vacation, you're really not restful. I can't wait till retirement so I can rest. I can't wait till my bank account's big enough so I can stop losing sleep at night that I might not have enough money to pay the bills. Then I can rest. I can't wait till I have the right job because then I don't have to stress about how much I hate my job and then I can rest. Can't wait till I find the right wife, the right husband, then I can rest. Can't wait till I have the right amount of kids, then we can rest. Can't wait till our kids are grown because then I can rest. Right? We just want to rest. We're tired. I mean, we're designed that way. We're designed to want Sabbath, but not Sunday. Sunday is not restful for me. I got to set up all this stuff. And I got to take it all down. I get here like five in the morning. I love it. I love leading you guys in worship. It's a lot of work. <laughs> I'm telling you what. I want to go home after church and rest. I'm tired. We are wired to want to rest. We're wired like that on purpose but a rest is not found here. Jesus is the Sabbath. They're coming to Jesus and saying once again, you know, why aren't you fasting? Because I'm God and I'm here. Why would they fast? Why are, you, why, are you, um, why are you eating on the Sabbath? I am the Sabbath. <laughs> Jesus says I am the Sabbath. Listen to this, this is cool. Matthew chapter 12, verse four through eight. You might write it down and check it out later. Jesus says, and this is the parallel text Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Listen, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. I read that again. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. What is it? Jesus. He's the greater temple. He's the greater Sabbath. He's the greater priesthood. He's the greater king. He's the greater David. He's the greater Joseph. He's the greater Moses. He's the kingdom. He's everything. I had a Jehovah's Witness one time, they asked me what I thought the kingdom was. I said, Jesus. They looked at let me like I had worms crawling out of my ears. I'm like, it is. <laughs> He's the kingdom. He's the glory. He's the priesthood. He's the temple. He's everything. Jesus says, I am the Sabbath. I am your Sabbath rest. Listen to this. Hebrews 4, 9 through 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Jesus is our Sabbath. That's good news. If we're gonna be disciples, we gotta get that because you're gonna get tired. You're gonna get burned out and you gotta know where your Sabbath is. We should be living Sabbath lives. Taking one day off a week is not gonna make you rest. 
Going to Hawaii for three weeks every year is not gonna let, re- let you rest. Retiring is not gonna let you rest. The only thing that's gonna let you rest is Jesus. He's your Sabbath. He says what? He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He's our yoke. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I find it interesting. It was the law that made these Pharisees put this burden on Jews in Judaism. But Jesus says, I am the law. I am the truth. I am the word. And I'm your yoke. If the law is burdensome, then you don't have me on. You have a religion on. If your Christianity is burdensome, it's because you're not wearing my yoke. I've designed it for you. I've made it specifically for you to wear. And it's supposed to be restful. Discipleship. Think about the disciples. Okay, this is my last thought. Think about the disciples. How did they do what they did? I mean, Stephen... The disciple was stoned, right? Can you imagine this? Like, he's sitting on his knees and these disciples all have these stones around him and they're re- literally ready to kill him by throwing rocks at him. I don't think we get that. Like, that's, that, that's horrible. You're about to, your head is about to get pummeled. Your face is about to get smashed by a rock until you die. And what does Stephen say? Lord, just forgive them. I mean, he's just got this cool attitude like, they can't hurt me. Dude, Stephen's on like a beach somewhere in his mind, right? He's not sitting there about to get stoned by some angry, angry religious dudes. He's on a beach. He's like on Sabbath. He's like, I don't care. I got the Holy Spirit. I know who Jesus is. I'm going to heaven. He's my Sabbath. I could throw a rock at my face all day long. I don't care. I mean, I wish I could be like that. To be a disciple, you got to know what your Sabbath is. Because you're going to get tired. People are going to persecute you. You're going to be stretched you gotta know where your Sabbath is. You gotta know where your Sabbath rest is. All the disciples were martyred, except for John. You know, all the disciples were martyred. They needed to know where their Sabbath was. You know? Would you guys stand with me real quick? I'm just gonna pray and we sing a song. Lord, I need you, oh, I need you, every hour I need you, my one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you, Lord, I need you, my righteousness oh God how I need Jesus you're our Sabbath I just pray we would know that we would claim that we would believe that pray you would fill us with your Holy Spirit with new wine God pray you would stretch us Lord pray Father that we would not cram you into something that you're not supposed to be crammed into I pray Lord that we would be part of the new kingdom Lord not the old religion Thank you for Christianity over Judaism, God. I thank you that we're free in you, Jesus, that you're our priest, our king. Thank you that you paid for our sins, that you've given us a new name, a new heart, a new life. 
God, teach us a heritage to worship you. Teach us a heritage to cling to you, to long for you, God, to desire you above air. Thank you for this scripture. I pray it would not just be a message, but that this scripture would be written on our hearts. And when we come back to it, we would be reminded that you're our Sabbath. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. You're dismissed. We'll see you Sunday.